All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm talking to you from the borough of Queens, and this is the first day of February in 2022. We do want to thank all of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice of America Business Channel. Also, like to encourage you to send along whatever comments you have about this show to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. And we do need to thank our sponsors. They make this show economically viable. Novo Resources, Eloro Resources, Hand and Metals, Irving Resources, Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp, Firefox Gold, and Timberline Resources are this week's sponsors. I've titled today's show Pathological Capitalism, American Style. Lynn Alden, Michael Oliver, and Quentin Henning join me this week. America is supposed to be the leader of the capitalist world, but Lynn Alden's January 2022 newsletter titled The Capital Sponge provides some hints as to why American capitalism has moved far away from true capitalists, from the true capitalist model, to something more akin to fascism. And Lynn points out that in recent years, the U.S. has attracted an amazing amount of global capital far in excess of its relative economic strength as measured by GDP. So that is, according to Lynn, and I think uh, very logically, she concludes that that can lead to some big risks for investors in the equity markets right now. What happens if foreign capital of massive amounts of something like $17 trillion of foreign money decides for one reason or another to move out of the U.S.? What happens to the markets when that happens, when that takes place, if and when it does, as Alistair McLeod has been predicting? How might that impact America's financial markets? It's, uh, how might that affect the various sectors? Uh, might there be some sectors uh, that would be more attractive and fare better in an environment in a bear market than, uh, than some others? And we'll talk to Lynn about that. What about some of the foreign markets that aren't as overvalued uh, as the U.S. seems to be at this point in time? In the second segment of today's show, right after our first commercial break, Quentin Henning will be uh, joining me to provide an update on Irving Resources and more than most companies that I follow in my newsletter, as well as uh, other sponsors uh, to this show, Irving, which is exploring for high-grade epithermal gold and silver deposits in Japan, has been negatively impacted by COVID. But now that the company is getting back on track with uh, its exploration activities, Quentin will provide an update on on Irving's plans and prospects for 2022 uh, and yes, it's uh, according to Quentin, uh, a discovery that they just talked about uh, in December is indeed a game changer. So we'll ask Quentin about that uh, once he comes on with us in a few minutes from now after first commercial break. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me. 
And uh, it's really good to have him with us. It's Momentum and Structural Analysis is the newsletter. And it's OliverMSA.com to check in on Michael and to sign up for his letter. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with us. Uh, On January 27th, you noted that based on your momentum and structural analytical work, uh, you did not want to see gold crack below 1795, I think was your precise number, uh, any day. And sure enough, it was only a day or two afterwards that it did crack that number, um, causing you to warn your subscribers this past weekend that there's still perhaps some downside risk here. What what can you tell us now about your thoughts? <clears throat> I think if there's, there's any downside risk, it's brief. It could be sharp. Um, I'm tending to think that the risk is maybe a bit less than I first assumed. What we broke uh, last week was fairly minor intermediate term to short term uh, momentum factors, not big stuff. Uh, but let's shift to, to silver first. Um, MSA's approach has been before defining full green light again for the monetary metals, gold and silver, we wanted to see both of them clear certain hurdles. And in November, gold cleared the hurdle. But mm-hmm. silver did not. And silver did not do it precisely within pennies, the number we specified. So we knew our numbers were good, and those numbers adjusted down for this quarter. And sure enough, in January, there was a rally that also went up to our new lower-adjusted number, breakout number, and stopped short, mm-hmm. as if it knew the number. Okay, so we know that our structures above on silver, looking at momentum now, not, not the price charts, are set for upside, we're confident of that, they're, and they're, they're massive. They look like once you clear them, silver could bolt back to the upper end of the range for the last few years, meaning the upper 20s, 30 bucks, quickly. Uh, but we got across the hurdle. They haven't done it yet. So we have a mixed picture in, in the monetary metals. But in the meantime, if you look at a price chart of silver, go back a couple of years, you'll see that every low that we've made since the 2020 <coughs> summer high, which was about 30 bucks, has been under has been twenty two dollars or slightly below, mm-hmm. twenty one and a half maybe. Okay, there's like four times silver in the last year and a half has dropped down to twenty two or twenty one and a half. Never touched twenty one, but kept coming down to this floor that, pardon me, any idiot could see with a ruler and a crayon. Mm-hmm. A price chart. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at the price chart, you say, oh my gosh, there's a floor that if they break it, it's all going to collapse. Okay, mm-hmm. but when you look at the momentum charts, it's a totally opposite picture. You have a breakout ceiling just above you. Mm-hmm. Now, when I get debates like that between what price looks like, and everybody can see it, which looks, oh, my gosh, there's a floor. If we break it, we're going down. And when I look at momentum, it says, no, nah, nah, you've got a launch pad to go up. Mm-hmm. The debate is usually won by momentum. However, there's always the risk, and it's not necessarily bad, that you go down and stomp out what all the price chart guys can see. Namely, let's get down to $21 silver and blow that floor and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Our suspicion is if you put a stinger on the downside in silver, and we're only talking a buck or so from where we are mm-hmm. right now, okay? Uh-huh. You go down, tag that number, blow out all these obvious price lows going back a year and a half, and nothing happens, and you flip back up, we think you'll explode. Mm-hmm. But we think there's the risk that you might do that. Mm-hmm. Those which have mm-hmm. the downside raid first. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're watching with that in mind. Now, we're not looking for a disaster. We're just looking for a, a bear trap, is what you uh-huh. can call it. Yeah. Um, well, 
And meanwhile, we're getting the same kind of picture out of the stock market the other way. Uh-huh. Uh, we're, we're getting a mixed picture there. Where, for instance, the end of January, NASDAQ 100 by our metrics is broken. Annual momentum mm-hmm. broke. Big scale. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. S&P did not. In the last, literally in the last three hours of the month, we had a number we didn't want to see the market close below and it rallied and closed above it. Uh-huh. So it, it, it avoided it. I don't think mm-hmm. it's going to continue to avoid it, but it did. So you have a mixed picture there. And, uh, you know, when you go around the world and look at other major stock indices, Europe did the same thing that S&P did. It got below stuff and got back above it on the close of the month. China and Japan didn't. They broke below us. You get a mixed picture. So we have the same thing going on in the stock markets of the world that we have in the monetary metals, only with different directions. Mm -hmm. Um, We think the stock markets are topping, and we're waiting on silver to give us the full green light. But in the process, like I, like you mentioned, we did issue a cautionary note that maybe there'll be some kind of short-term downside raid here mm-hmm. left within, you know, in the in the gold and silver markets. We don't think it's a trending situation. We think it's a stinger if it occurs. Mm-hmm. So that's that's All right. sort of to define what we meant. <laughs> All right, and and uh, Michael, you uh, paid some attention to the dollar gold relationship in your. Uh, Weekend missive. Would you like to comment on that? I mean, there doesn't yeah, seem to be well, any correlation. A very lengthy report on the dollar to, to show a couple things. One, its correlation to gold. Yeah, you know, maybe um, over the fifty-year period, the dollar has come down in huge slabs. People don't aren't mm-hmm. pay, don't pay attention to that. They just look at the last few months. Uh, we think that the recovery the dollar has had, which has been trivial on a percentage basis over the last year, we were down under ninety on the dollar index, and we got up to 97 here this, this month. We don't, we don't trust that rally. We think it's failing. So we think the dollar is about to head back down again. But the, co- the close correlation, inverse correlation, between dollar and gold is not good. It mm-hmm. doesn't really exist. Uh-huh. Uh, and and we, we showed that because if you went back to 2015 when gold made its low, just, you know, $1,046, mm-hmm. it doubled, okay? Got up to 2070 in a matter of, what, five years, right. uh, less than five years. Uh, what did the dollar do? Nothing. Mm-hmm. It was sideways during that five-year period, either side of the mid-90s on the dollar index. So the dollar index is not a good thing to be looking at on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. It really isn't. It's not. Broadly speaking, yes, the dollar will decay as gold goes up. So will the yen. So will the euro. They all decay. Okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's what they do. Uh, but uh, any attempt to use it as a trading indicator is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more thing here before I let you go. Lynn Alden is going to be our guest in the second half of today's show, and she's talking about the overvaluation of U.S. equities relative to other markets around the world. Yep. Uh, you know, it's something like 62% of all the all of the uh, equity market valuations in the world is here in the U.S., despite the fact that yep. we only have 28% of the global GDP, something like that. Those are, those are her numbers. That's where the uh, numbers important. So here's, That's where the here's my question important. for you. Yeah. Now, I know you watch global markets. Do you see anything, any equity markets anywhere in the world that might be attractive now relative to the U.S. dollar market, or, or uh, would you stay away none from of the major everything? markets? No, I think they're all going to go in unison. The issue will be which goes down more, and I think the U.S. will go down more. Why? It's a bubble. Mm-hmm. It's a bubble it's a bigger, beyond. Uh-huh. Yeah, China can turn down, but it didn't have a bubble. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't printed into outer space like we were. Uh, yeah. And I think the issue on the foreign investors is this. One of the factors they look at, but U.S. investors don't, is the currency in which they had to buy it, the dollar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If the dollar suddenly becomes drops, as we think it's about to, uh, even if it drops 5 or 6 7%, you can take that off their, their position. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that hurts them. You know, the S&P yeah. could stand still, but if they lose in dollar valuation, mm-hmm. uh, then, you know, that's a factor for them. So yeah. the dollar, in fact, could be important to those foreign investors. And mm-hmm. to the extent that they're heavily weighted in the U.S. market, which is definitely the case, uh, if they start to run, partly because they're being provoked by a weak dollar, uh, that could that could help exacerbate the downside in, in the U.S. market mm-hmm. relative yeah. to other markets. Yeah. Yeah, there's something like $17 trillion of foreign money oh, in, yeah. invested in the U.S. And uh, so Lynn, Lynn will be addressing that. And what are the reasons why did that huge accumulation take place? She'll be talking about that. She'll also be... Uh, talking about some of the things that could cause a reversal, and I would just think that that would be one of them. If the dollar starts losing value, and you're looking at it from some other foreigner's perspective, from their currency, and you say, "Oh my gosh, I'm really, mm-hmm. I'm really getting hosed here." I mean, yeah. it might not be a slow sort of an exodus; it could be a rapid thing. And I think that's, I don't know. I think it could be on. very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, my engineer says I got a minute or two left. What about uranium markets, oil, gas, some of those things, yeah, commodities uh, in general? We still suspect uh, there's a stinger in the tail of natural gas on the upside. Um, <coughs> it, it made a high short of six dollars and fifty cents uh, late last year, and dropped mm-hmm. back under four. And right now we're toying either side of five. Okay, I, we still suspect technically that we could get up to you know maybe nine dollars which, of course, for U.S. markets is a big deal, uh, considering mm-hmm. it was a couple bucks a year and a half ago. Okay? Right. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, so we sort of like it on a percentage basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, oil still looks like it's going to go up, uh, you know, another, it's in the high 80s, it could easily approach 100, you know, mm-hmm. before it runs into the next trouble. Uh, uranium is holding, it's in a congestion zone. Uh, it, it's, not an, a liquid, it's not a liquid market. The futures exist, yeah. but only enough to get a daily price, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, they're in the mid-40s, and it's basically a, a coil for the last four or five months where it's holding its ground, but it's not gaining. Uh-huh. Uh, we suspect there could be more upside there, too, along mm-hmm. with the other energy sources. Um, so, yeah, we, the energy is definitely still positive as far as we're concerned, mm-hmm. uh, and, and energy-related stocks, therefore. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very okay. good. Well, thank you, uh, Michael. Thank you for the update on, on these key markets. Always always valuable to have you with us. And I know one of our more popular guests, and you're uh, always welcome. So thank you so much for being with us once thank again. You, All right, folks, we do have to go to break, but don't go away because Quentin Henning is going to be with me, and he's going to talk about Irving Resources. They uh, had an announcement towards the end of December that uh, he he says is a game changer. We'll ask him why. Uh, when we talk to Quentin Henning right after the break, so don't go away. SK Mining Corp. Trading under the symbol ESK on the TSX Venture and ESKYF on the OTCQB is a mineral exploration company targeting precious metals, rich VMS deposits in the heart of British Columbia's Golden Triangle. 
SK Mining controls a prospective land package totaling 130,000 acres, which lies across a geologic trend that once hosted the prolific SK Creek Mine. With a world-renowned geological team, funding in place, and shareholders such as Eric Sprott, SK Mining is on the cusp of a world-class discovery. Go to skmining.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again one of our most respected and most frequent guests, Dr. Quentin Henning. He is with us today to talk about Irving Resources. That's a company for which he is a director. It is also a company that I have listed as a, uh, a recommendation in my newsletter, and it's also one that I own personally. Um, I'm very, very excited about this story, so I'm really happy to have Quentin with us and Irving is uh, involved in exploring for epithermal gold systems in, in Japan, and um, it's a fairly unique, uh, somewhat unique uh, business model that Quentin will, will tell you about. Uh, but most of all, I think what you want to keep your ears open to is what is the announcement that the company made on December 13th uh, that is, uh, looks like a very, very important announcement. Quentin will tell you why. Irving Resources trades in Canada, IRV, IRVRF in the U.S., 69.9 million shares. I saw trading earlier today at about 86 cents in U.S. money, that giving it a market cap of roughly $60 million. Quentin, thanks so much for joining me again. Hey, it's always a pleasure, Jay. It is always a pleasure to have you on. And um, for the benefit of the listeners, maybe just very quickly uh, explain the business thesis and the uh, the business model that's a little bit unique, I would say, to Japan. Yeah, certainly. Look, uh, Japan is uh, a gold province. Most people don't know that, but uh, gold's been mined here for many hundreds of years. Uh, most, most of it's been produced over the past, say, 400 years uh, since the Edo period. Uh, and there are a number of world-class gold mines. There was uh, a number of historic mines like Sato Island and, uh, yeah, yeah, um, Kushikino and so forth that produce a lot of gold, but there were there have also been more recent discoveries like uh, the famous Ishikari deposit, which mm-hmm. is still one of the highest grade operating gold mines on earth. It produces, I think, around two or three hundred thousand ounces a year at very low cost. It's an epithermal vein system, a hot spring vein system in Kyushu. Mm-hmm. Uh, the business model that we have is, you know, to look for. Similar deposits to to Hishikari and these other epithermal vein systems across Japan, uh, but to find ones that have high silica uh, that are ideally suited for smelter flux, flux mm-hmm. used in smelters to help with the the thermal uh, you know uh, retention inside of the kilns, uh, but also to to help materials melt, uh, mm-hmm. you know just chemical. And uh, these smelters in Japan, there's many of them. They all need many tens or even hundreds of thousands of tons of flux per year. And the gold and the silver come out when the, the rock is added to the furnace. So basically, mm-hmm. 
uh, comes out into the copper or zinc or lead or whatever they're producing. And then the gold and silver are then subsequently recovered through uh, electrolytic processing of the the metal being sought. So you know, mm-hmm. gold were basically byproducts of the smelting process. Now, what this means is uh, you can, if you find a, a nice deposit of gold and silver uh, silica veins, you can sell it, you know, outright to the smelters. Uh, they usually pay over 90% for the precious metal content. They actually pay for the silica content as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> $35 US per, per ton for the silica. Uh-huh. So, you know, that's got value. And uh, there's no end to appetite here. So, you know, it's a wonderful outcome. You don't have to capitalize a mill, for example. You can mm-hmm. actually just mine this stuff and, and ship it direct. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for deposits that would be well-suited for smelter flex. Right. And Okay, so that's the big picture. Now, on December 13th, an announcement of the discovery of a buried epithermal deposit at the Omui mine site that's in Hokkaido, and um, that's in the northern part of Japan where you've focused most of your efforts so far. But you're calling this a game changer, Quentin, if I understood you properly. Talk us, talk to us about the significance of this discovery. Well, uh, it, it's quite interesting. The Omui site, which is the core, I'll call it the core target area within the Omu property, it's it's one of three target areas. I shouldn't say it's core, but it's one of the core properties or targets. Uh, is an interesting occurrence. It's uh, it, it's on a mining concession, so it's actually already you know halfway to becoming a mine in the sense of permitting and, and legalities. Um, but the uh, the system itself is a, an exceptionally high grade uh, occurrence. Okay, we've we've. It, to describe it in just basic terms, it's an area about maybe two or three square kilometers in size in which the ground is just totally cooked. I mean, the, the rocks are thoroughly altered. There are veins crisscrossing this place everywhere. We've drilled uh, on the order of 24, 20 to 25 holes, call it, on the property so far, and all but one of them have hit high-grade veins. In fact, many of the holes have hit numerous high-grade veins. But when we were drilling late last year, uh, we had an, a, kind of an amazing occurrence. Uh, we were targeting this kind of step out, follow up around these veins, and we found that there's a completely buried system underneath. Okay, we were drilling some veins. The, the drill hole started to encounter more solidification. I encouraged the team in Japan to keep drilling which they did, fortunately, and they went into a completely buried silica center system. What does this mean? Well, it means there's basically an entirely preserved uh, hot spring system, uh, a second hot spring system below the surface. Now, this is very important, and I'll tell you uh, why. When I first went to Omui, uh, I found uh, the, the prospector who vended the property to us showed me occurrences of veins exceptionally high grade, you know, running many ounces of gold and hundreds of even thousands of ounces of silver. Hmm. And I, I took some samples and sure enough, I mean, wonderful results. Now we've drilled a lot of holes and we've hit a lot of veins, but we've never seen anything just uber bonanza like that. But what I've realized now, uh, once we got this, these results from uh, hole two late last year, is that the rocks I was sampling are probably being uh, derived from the lower center. Uh, okay, oh. So, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's quite interesting. I mean, these are basically uh, 
rocks that are being ripped up by the, the hydrothermal system after it was buried. Like, yeah, you know, imagine a hot spring. Let's say you're in Yellowstone Park. You're standing next to a hot spring. It's doing its thing. It's, you know, bubbling out water and geysers and so forth. But then all of a sudden, boom, there's a volcanic eruption. And you bury the thing by 200 meters of volcanic rock. Okay? <laughs> so hot spring system going to do. It's going to try to make its way back up to the surface. And that's what happened here. So the veins we've been exploring are the ones that formed in the second pulse, the ones where the system tried to reestablish itself. Mm -hmm. And as they did, they ripped up material from below, including this uber-high-grade stuff. Now my view is that the uber-high-grade samples that we collected at site are probably coming from the lower center terrace or, or thereabouts. So we're going to drill some holes here soon. Uh, we are going back up because this is so exciting. We're going to go ahead and start drilling here in a few weeks and follow up on this. So mm -hmm. um, stay tuned. Um, is this quite a bit deeper then than what you were drilling before? It's about 200 meters vertically uh, mm -hmm. down below uh, surface. Uh, so it is, you know, we've been testing for the most part in the upper 200 meters. Uh, we had one hole, though, hole 10 from 2019, which actually did drill down into the lower area. And if you recall, we hit something like 22 veins in that hole. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in, you know, now that I, now that we can put this whole picture together, I think the bottom of hole 10, which had exceptional mineralization, is actually part of this lower system. You know, if you look at it, it's it got down into that lower part. Now, we didn't understand it at the time, but now we do. Mm -hmm. That's where we're going back at this thing very aggressively. I think there is uh -huh. a big, big system down there. And uh, there is a, uh, I think the Fruta del Norte is a very similar sort of occurrence, isn't it? I, I'm really glad you brought that up because that is the analog here. Fruta del Norte in Ecuador, when they first discovered it, uh, the center, which, um, you know, it did poke out, I think, in one or two places, uh, was, for the most part, buried. Okay, so mm -hmm. they were drilling down, they hit a cinder cap, and it was a, a little ways underneath that that they actually found the ore body. Okay, so I'm really hoping, uh, you know, this might be a similar scenario where when we start rooting around and poking holes down below this lower center that we find an exceptional gold system uh, buried and completely preserved uh, underneath the surface. Well, you have a lot of other targets that you're looking at too, but I guess this is probably your primary focus. Will be this this year is uh, is this uh, is this new occurrence? But maybe yeah. uh, just just talk to us briefly about some of the other things that you have going. And I know you've been doing a lot of uh, a lot of grassroots exploration and coming up with more targets as well. I, well, I don't know if you have if you want to talk about that. No, let's let's talk about it. Look, uh, we will drill some more holes at. Hokuria, we le we left off drilling there uh, late last year. We we got one hole in. We're going to drill some more up there. That's part of Omu. Very high grade veins up there. Uh, we're going to drill some more holes at Omu Center, which is down near the, next to the ocean. Again, part of the Omu project. So we have more drill uh, targets to test later this year. But we also are gearing up work at Yamagana. Yamagano is our project down in Kyushu, which is next to Hishikari. It's nearby. And we think it's an analog, a direct analog of the Hishikari deposit. So we're, we're going to gear up some work there. We've got a lot of geophysics done already. Uh, we are starting to see some very clear patterns uh, emerge from that. And once we get all the geophysics done, we will test, uh, develop a drill test for that target later this year. Yeah, you also, I mean, another exciting story is uh, what you're doing down in the southern part of the country. Uh, 
uh, what is it, Yamagano uh, mining license. Can you just talk to us briefly about that? Yeah, Yamagano, yeah, that's the one I was just describing. Oh, you were describing, yeah, right. You know, the way to think about it, yeah, I wasn't sure how much time we had, but the way to think about Yamagano is kind of the crown jewel of exploration in Japan. Yeah. (laughs) It is the closest project to Hishikari. I mean, it's basically the one right next door. It is in the same age rock, same geology. It's the same age system. It's basically a replicate of Hishikari. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the historic mining that was done there uh, dates back about 400 years ago to the Edo period. And the, there was a family called the Shimatsus who owned the core mining lease here for 400 years. Now, Akiko <laughs> managed to cut a deal with Shimatsus. It's an absolutely amazing feat given that you know many mining companies, many big mining companies in Japan have tried to get this tenement. But here, <laughs> Akiko pulled it off. So, well, so we she's mining lease and we've now staked tenements around it so we have the entirety of the Yamagano district and I'm telling you this is the absolute crown jewel of exploration in Japan I'm very optimistic we will find a replicate of Hishikari and all that for a 60 million dollar market cap company and it's just really exciting I think it obviously uh, you know COVID really uh, hurt you more hurt Irving more than a lot of other companies but I guess you're you're really get you're getting going now. You have the drillers. Uh, and how many rigs will you have going this year? COVID was uh, a nightmare, as we know. Uh, we have we have two rigs actually. One from Sumitomo Metal Mining, and we have one from Canada from Rodrigo Drilling. We're going to use both of those this year. Um, mm-hmm. We'll start up at Omu. Hopefully, we get uh, the permits in place for Yamagano by late year, and we can drill there too. But we are gearing things back up i'm really hoping that omicron and this blowout of uh, covid is basically going to yes. covid in the rearview mirror and we can get on with life amen with that and the company's well funded for this year uh yes we are i think uh, currently we have around uh 10 or 11 million canadian dollars uh, of course newmont uh has been a strong supporter of us over the years and i would cont- i would expect them to continue to be so yeah, you have some great shareholders, and that's that's always important too. Uh, so, uh, well, it looks it's going to be really exciting. I guess just looking forward, then the drivers will be, you know, will be looking for the for the drill results coming out uh, from uh, from your new discovery there this year. That'll be one thing, and then I guess we'll have a pretty steady diet of drill results as as time goes on. That's correct. Yes, we should get drill results from the two holes we finished late last year here soon. But then we're going to fire up the drill again here shortly, and then I'm hoping to see a steady stream of drill releases from Omui, Hokuri, and Omui Center over the next few months. At the end of the year, that's when we would hit Yamagano. Great. All right. Well, we'll have to leave a go at that. Quentin, thank you so much for spending the time with us, explaining this very exciting story. I hope that people will go to the website, the Irving uh, website, and check it out and um, do your due diligence. But it is a very exciting story, one that I really like a lot personally. Uh, So thank you, Quentin. Thanks again. Thank you, Jay. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Lynn Alden is going to be with us to talk about the market changes that she sees uh, into 2022. Uh, And uh, she'll talk a little bit about the massive amount of uh, capital that has flown to the United States that, uh, well, it better stay here. There could be some downside risk. We'll talk to Lynn Alden when we get back from uh, right after the break. Don't go away.
Lion One Metals is focused on high-grade gold in Fiji, led by legendary Canadian financier Walter Barakoff. Lion One is permitted for production and drilling for discoveries in one of the most exciting high-grade gold projects in the prolific South Pacific Ring of Fire. Lion One trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol LIO and on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF. Go to our website at liononemetals.com for more information about Lion One Metals and high-grade gold in Fiji. Timberline Resources is a mineral exploration and resource development company focused on gold discovery in the world-class mining jurisdiction of Nevada. The company's flagship Eureka project hosts a significant gold resource and drill-indicated upside potential at nearby higher-grade targets. Timberline Resources trades in Canada under the symbol TBR and on the OTCQB in the U.S. under the symbol TLRS. To learn more about this district-scale asset with exciting discovery potential, please visit www.timberlineresources.co. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back, Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me once again, Lynn Alden. Um, and I would just suggest that you go to lynnalden.com to check out all that she does. She is very generous with uh, with her work. She shares a, a, a newsletter. It's not quite every month, but almost every other month or every six weeks or something like that. It's just always a must-read when I see it coming in my inbox. I read it, and that is a freebie. But she does also have a very reasonably priced um, uh, service for people who would like to invest based on her insights. And uh, she's um, very, very, been very, very successful. And uh, I think evidence of that is her growing popularity. I was very pleased recently to be having lunch with my wife and uh, watching uh, uh, Charles Payne on Fox Business. And there she was. Uh, really, really nice to see uh, Lynn getting the attention she deserves. And as I say, it's because I think she's her insights are 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 unique to Lynn, and she provides a lot of value to uh, to people. So that's why you should go to lynnalden.com. Uh, consider signing up for her letter, either the freebie or maybe you want to consider um, paying this lady for the good work she does. Lynn, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me back. Always happy to be here. Oh, thank you. It's really it's really great to hear you say that. You. You started out, and I'd like to refer to the January 16th, 2022 newsletter titled The Capital Sponge. You started out noting that the U.S. stock market <clears throat> excuse me, uh, recently totaled, I think, 61.3% of all global market capitalization, despite the fact that the U.S. GDP is only 23% of, global, uh, of the global GDP. Um, maybe we can get into what are the reasons? How did so much money flow into the U.S. equity markets, and it's, you provided a number of, of, of reasons. I'd like to maybe just go there right away. Reason number one was lower rates. 
Could you talk about how that impacted and how that sucked capital into the U.S.? Yeah, so this this one this variable was, was true for all of the all of the developed world, which is essentially mm-hmm. that all these all these different countries cut their rates from pretty high levels uh, back in the '80s uh, steadily down for decades to zero uh, or even below zero in some cases, and so that translated a different you know basically when you have a much lower interest rate when you're comparing investing in stocks and and determining what valuation is appropriate. You're comparing it to a lower and lower hurdle rate. So, for example, mm-hmm. treasuries, if treasuries pay you 5%, then you might demand 10% returns on your more volatile equities. But mm-hmm. if treasuries are yielding 1% or 2%, you might settle for 5 or 6% on your equities. Uh, mm-hmm. And so as we've squeezed the yields out of, out of bonds worldwide and cash, uh, it's propped up assets. And so in, in places like Europe, Canada, Australia, uh, China, a lot of that goes into their real estate markets. Mm-hmm. Um, in the United States, because we have the deepest and most liquid stock market, and because interest rates uh, particularly benefit growth stocks, and the and the S and P 500, the American stock market, very growth oriented, high technology exposure, a lot of the capital uh, poured over into U.S. markets, and so our real estate market is not necessarily as elevated as some of those really bubbly real estate markets out there, but instead our equity market captured quite a bit, and a lot of people assume that. You know, even though the United States is a uh, you know a, a decreasing share of global GDP compared to our market cap, they assume that maybe it's because we're selling so many products abroad. Like maybe we're selling so many iPhones. Uh, but actually, if you look at say the S and P 500 percent of foreign sales, uh, it's flattened down over the past decade. Uh, yeah. And so it's it's not that we're selling more to the rest of the world. Quite the contrary, we have a massive trade deficit. Uh, instead, it's really about that you know. Corporations have been able to increase their profit margins because they've been able to offshore their labor outside of the country. They've been given tax cuts uh, that helped boost their valuation, uh, and uh, they have much higher uh, multiples, earnings multiples on top of those elevated earnings. And mm-hmm. so it's mostly about that domestic focus and the high valuations that have propelled so much U.S. stock market performance and have resulted in so much capital being stuffed into U.S. markets. Mm-hmm. So. I'm still not sure that I understand why, let's say, Canada has higher – I think you said Canada, the Canadians have higher real estate prices or that housing isn't necessarily – I mean, compared to some of these other countries, we think of it, you know, especially living in New York and San Francisco and places like that. They're very expensive, but I guess overall the U.S. real estate markets are not as stretched as some of the others then, I guess I hear you saying. Yeah, I mean, generally, if you look at, for example, China has a very, very rich uh, uh, housing market, and mm-hmm. uh, some of those buyers then go to Australia and Canada in particular, uh, and 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 other in parts of Southeast Asia, and mm-hmm. they pour capital into those markets. They invest heavily in real estate. Uh, whereas, for example, pension funds around the world, uh, sovereign wealth funds around the world, they they want more liquid type of securities, and so the the you know the biggest deep in, deepest liquid market in the world is basically the U.S. stock market. So a lot mm-hmm. of that capital pours over. And if you look at if you look at U.S. value stocks, they're not necessarily very highly valued. Like if you look at our banks, if you look at our healthcare companies, if you look at our energy companies, they're not you know they're they're somewhat more expensive than the rest of the world. Uh, but really, it's it's the growth equities uh, and just the U.S. the U.S. the U.S. stock market happens to have a much higher allocation to technology and disc- uh, consumer discretionary. And so a lot of this capital, when they say, okay, I want, I want, so interest rates are super low, and they say, I want something with structural growth, and so they they pour into growth stocks that make sense, except mm-hmm. that now that now they're bid up to such high valuations that it becomes riskier. Right. 
Well, I mean, some of those um, you know, giants like Google and some of those guys, that Facebook and Twitter and some of those, I guess, are doing extremely well. Um, but you think there's some risk with some of those big guys as well? Yeah, a lot one of, of the risk? big yeah, I mean, but if you look at over the over the past decade, for example, they've done very well fundamentally, but then their valuations went up even faster. Mm-hmm. And and so, for example, as they get bigger and as their growth in many cases decelerates, their valuations are actually higher than they used to be. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, as you transition from a growth stock to more of a blue chip value stock, you'd expect valuations to come down eventually mm-hmm. to reflect that. And instead, many of them are at at, at rather high valuations. Uh, and it's not just the tech sector. It's basically any sort of like growth, low volatility equity, like things like Costco, Nike, for example, mm-hmm. uh, their multiples are quite high. And if you look mm-hmm. at U.S. household equity allocations, they're near the highest they've ever been. So basically U.S. households have a greater share of their net worth in equities uh, than pretty much any other time over the past 70 years. Oh. Uh, Americans are underweight foreign securities and overweight domestic securities. And then the rest of the world is also overweight U.S. securities. And so we have to ask ourselves at this point, who's the marginal buyer? Who's going to come in and keep you know, getting us even higher in terms of valuation? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. we're necessarily calling a top, but it means that there's more. The higher you get, gravity mm-hmm. becomes somewhat stronger here in terms of pulling down and and making it hard to, to keep increasing valuations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to wonder then. Um, well, maybe we'll we'll get to the reasons or the catalyst that could change things. So, uh, and I certainly want to hear that. I hear you talk about that, but. Corporate tax rates. I mean, uh, when I turn on Fox and I listen to people, the Republicans, uh, they're they're complaining that our tax rates are too high. But I guess what you're talking about are effective tax rates. There's always these loopholes that are there. Um, I mean, any comment on that? Uh, taxes. Uh, I think you made the point in your article that one of the reasons so much capital has flown here is that the policies have been weighted towards corporate interests in the last couple of decades, right? Yeah, so there's different ways to characterize tax. And so if you specifically look at corporate tax rate, which is basically mm-hmm. saying, okay, here's your corporate income. We're going to take a percentage of it. One is that the effective rate is much lower than the headline rate because right. of various deductions, loopholes, things like that. That's gone steadily down. Uh, I have a chart on it basically just showing like a, a steady decline uh, to pretty low levels. Uh, and I'm in favor of low corporate tax rates, but we have to acknowledge that, it's, that as that's gone down, it's been a factor in pushing up equity uh, uh, multiples. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then specifically also basically there's different ways to tax different segments of society. And so as we've decreased our emphasis on corporate tax, we've increased our emphasis on payroll taxes. Uh, mm-hmm. And so basically you tax consume, you know, consumers more on their paycheck side. And in addition, that, that's also got an employer side. So employers pay payroll taxes. Uh, and what that essentially means is that the, you know, if you look at the biggest companies like Apple, Microsoft, uh, Netflix, companies like that, uh, the, you know, they labor costs are a much, you know, smaller oh, share sure. of their revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you have a high payroll tax and a low net income tax, that benefits those uh, those capital light companies, those software sure. type of companies, financials. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you instead, for example, focus your tax cuts on maybe the employer side of payroll. Uh, uh, tax, uh, then that would actually benefit the manufacturers, that would benefit the domestic, uh, you know, uh, uh, more heavy asset type of industries. And so mm-hmm. how, how they tweak how they tweak uh, tax policy has a big impact on which industri- industries benefit. And because that headline and effective rate's gone down, it's helped propel capital into those software type names. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so the, a third reason you gave uh, that you gave for the massive flow of capital to the U.S. was recycled trade deficits. Uh, can you explain how America's chronic trade deficit, which we've had, I guess, going back pretty much to since 1971 is when it started and went off the gold standard, how has that fueled money going into the U.S.? I guess it's just that foreigners have more dollars, and so they recycle them here either into treasuries or equity markets. Yeah, so back in 1974, after after you know the U.S. was trying to salvage the system, and mm-hmm. what they did is they made a deal with Saudi Arabia uh, and other OPEC nations, and they said, "Look, we have this really big military. We're a really big trade partner," um, and they say, "Okay, you go ahead, Saudi Arabia, and you only only sell your oil in dollars, no matter who's buying it. France, Japan, doesn't matter. If they if they want your oil, only agree to sell in dollars, and and." In exchange, we'll give you good good trade deals like arms. We'll also protect the region for you and mm-hmm. ensure stability. And so now, for almost 50 years, uh, you know the vast majority of oil sales globally are priced in dollars. And what that essentially means is that any country in the world that wants to import oil needs to have dollars. And so it creates this extra demand for dollars. And that mm-hmm. sounds good at first, except that you know basically it 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 strengthens the dollar above what it would be on a trade weighted basis. So it makes our our importing power more competitive and it makes our exports less competitive because Mm -hmm. they're basically more expensive compared to say not just their emerging market peers but compared to the european and japanese peers as well Mm -hmm. Uh, and so that that basically makes it much more costly much more challenging to make things and export physical things from the united states where we can still do high margin things like software and, and finance and healthcare and things like that but only that you know there's a headwind against anyone that wants to you know make physical things in the United States, and so mm-hmm. it's contributed to this kind of structural trade deficit, and all those dollars flow out to those creditor countries, those, those right. countries running big trade surpluses. So China, uh, Germany, Japan, Taiwan, mm-hmm. Switzerland, they take these big they, all all their dollars, and then they they used to buy treasuries, they still do to some extent, but they also buy. U.S. stocks, they buy U.S. real estate, they buy U.S. land, they buy wholly owned U.S. subsidiaries, companies. And so they end up, you know, we basically buy, we're running a deficit, we're buying consumer products, depreciating consumer products from overseas, and they take those dollars and they buy our, like, permanent appreciating hard assets with them over time. So we're basically hollowing out our our financial base mm-hmm. uh, to, to consume. We're hollowing out our, I would say, we're hollowing out our manufacturing base, are we not, if if the money flows overseas to the creditor nations, then they're in a position where they can buy essential assets. Uh, yeah, is that, that what's it, happening to a certain extent? And then we're losing our manufacturing jobs as well? Yeah, and it's a one-two punch because if you go back to the prior point, so you know, we, we do cut corporate taxes, but we you know our payroll taxes are still high. And we have the highest health care cost per capita, which is uh, a big chunk mm-hmm. of that is on employers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's very hard to – um, uh, basically hire Americans for manufacturing work, uh, mm-hmm. even not, again, not just compared to emerging markets, but compared to industrial advanced peers. We, we, you know, it, it's fine to say export low margin things like textiles, but you don't want to be in the position of export, of not being able to produce high quality machinery, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we've been in that situation. And so if you're, if you're in the top 10% of the population that owns 89% of U.S. equities, uh, you benefit. Your, your job did not really get outsourced. Your capital assets keep going up in price. Um, but if you're if you're generally in in say the other 90%, especially the blue collar physical workforce, uh, you generally got a lot of the cost of the system, and you didn't necessarily own a lot of the assets that that ballooned in price over these decades. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was really interesting when you said that 
uh, Kissinger, I guess the Nixon administration, went to Saudi Arabia and said, "Look, we have this big military. We have these, we have these, these all these armaments, and we not well. Let's let's get some use out of them, right? Let's let's use these things." And I just have to keep thinking back. I'm an old guy, a lot older than you, Lynn, and I remember um, hearing about President Eisenhower warning about the military-industrial complex. And it seems to me that this whole idea of the dollar. Being a pet, making the dollar into a petrodollar instead of a gold-backed dollar allowed the United States to expand its empire much more aggressively than it would have if there was more of an even playing field with gold, with a gold monetary system as we had up until 71. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, and it came at a cost. So basically, you know, uh, you can argue, like analyst Luke Groman has argued that, say, in the 1970s and 80s, the system kind of made sense. It was kind of a chess move against the Soviet Union in the uh-huh. Middle East to make sure we had uh-huh. control of that region. But ever since the Soviet Union fell in the 90s, you know, we probably should have pivoted the system. But instead, by maintaining the petrodollar system as it is, you know, the United States has been tied at the hip with Saudi Arabia, right? So mm-hmm. it's not exactly the most humanitarian partner to have in this arrangement, to say the least. And so we're, we're tied at the hip with Saudi Arabia, and we have to, you know, look the other way in a lot of their policies and kind of basically what we do is we sacrifice kind of domestic vibrancy. We outsource our manufacturing base. We have the highest uh, wealth concentration in the developed world, in large part because these policies are not really great for our, our blue-collar workers. Uh, and we kind of put all the benefits uh, onto the, the, the capital holders. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's been this environment where, you know, capitalism gets blamed for a lot of things, but really it's that cronyism, it's that military-industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And so I think, it's the, I think it's the exact issue that Eisenhower warned about. Yeah, I, I definitely do. It seems, seems very clear to me. Well, interesting also um, – and I know I'm spending more time on the reason number three, the recycled trade deficit, because it it seems so much a part of the of the system. Uh, but um, I I just was wondering also oh, oh an interesting part in your letter, the Dutch disease, the Financial Times called the petrodollar, the Dutch disease. Maybe you could just explain what the Dutch disease is and how it sort of fits with what's going on here in the U.S. Well, yeah, basically what it refers to is like let's say I I make machinery and, and, and let's say you're in Europe and you make machinery, right? Mm-hmm. So we're competing we're competing against each other, and then someone in my country finds an absolutely massive oil field, and they start mm-hmm. exporting a lot of oil, and that strengthens the currency that I'm operating in, mm-hmm. right? That now suddenly my products are less competitive on the international uh, uh, scale than your products, mm-hmm. and so I I I could cut prices in my currency, but the problem is. You know, my employees are paid in my currency. My debt is denominated in my currency. Uh, and so I, I just overall become less competitive of a business than you because of this other oil find. It, you know, mm-hmm. it'd, be different, it'd be different if we were pricing our products in, say, grams of gold, some sort of international yeah. standard. But because we're pricing it in our currencies and our currencies can be uh, uh, impacted by something else. So mm-hmm. basically what, the, what that article refers to is that by putting the treasury at the center of, of the global system, and basically enforcing its usage, we uh, United States basically gave itself Dutch disease because everybody in the world needs dollars and treasuries, and mm-hmm. that essentially f- it basically makes our exports less competitive. It makes our imports uh, stronger, and so it kind of it kind of gives us this structural trade deficit. And so depending on where you are in that system, if you're if you're a foreign exporter, you're benefiting. If you're an American kind of you know top 10% capital holder, you're benefiting. Uh, but if you're a foreign consumer or if you're a domestic uh, manufacturer, you're impacted negatively by that system. And so mm-hmm. it's basically uh, the system kind of has advantages and disadvantages, but it really does pick winners. All right. Lynn, we only have a few minutes left, and I, I just, I'm going to just mention reason number four is passive investing. I guess that has to do with 
money going into um, uh, into the large capital companies for the most part? Yeah, when you have a market cap weighted index and you put more money in, uh, basically you keep instructing the passive index provider to keep buying more and more of those large companies. And so, uh, you know, that that creates, uh, you know, people complain about that. It does create opportunities for investors that are willing to go around the side and find these other events that are being overlooked. Uh, but it also does, you know, kind of drive up these valuations, uh, especially for the more growth and, and large market cap indices. And the risk is that if all this capital gets shoved in, if there's changing conditions, if the Fed tries to withdraw liquidity, if, if, if basically we get past Omicron, the world opens up more, uh, capital can move out of the country and you can get a declining dollar and a declining stock market uh, at the same time. And that's actually, if you, if you look at the dot-com bubble, mm -hmm. again, so much capital was shoved in there and the dollar was very strong and you had the Asian financial crisis and, and, and long-term capital management blew up in, in part because that dollar was spiking and causing those emerging markets to run into issues. Uh, but as that eventually unwound after the dot-com bubble, uh, you had U.S. equity markets and the U.S. dollar being weak, being weak together. And so we mm -hmm. potentially could go through another one of those cycles. Right. All right. Well, let's get to the catalyst with a couple of minutes left here, the catalyst that could lead a reversal of this capital flow to the United States equity markets. Interest rates. Yeah, so I guess that's an obvious one. Yeah, we've been in this 40-year structural downtrend of interest rates, and you know it, they wouldn't even have to go up in order to cause headwinds here. If they just start going sideways, if they kind of run into this, you know, kind of near zero level, and they start chopping sideways, uh, that that already takes out one of the tailwinds. Um, another one is that you know there have been talks about you know potentially raising corporate tax rates a little bit. Uh -huh. uh, at the very least, it seems like you know there's not another corporate tax cut on the horizon. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that kind of trend of structurally lower corporate tax rates is probably behind us. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also U.S. corporations have benefited from an aggressive kind of 25-year policy of outsourcing, mm -hmm. where they've been able to they basically do geographic arbitrage. They they save on wages while still earning high revenue. Uh, mm -hmm. And 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 you know China's kind of past its peak in terms of population growth, uh, in terms of its ability to you know harness a lot of power for manufacturing. And so I think we're part of the supply chain problems we're seeing is that we, you know, we, we've, we've kind of already tapped into that big deflationary resources, new labor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I think some of those trends are going to be a little bit uh, harder for corporations to maintain their profit margins. Mm -hmm. uh, and then also, you know, basically we, we saw, for example, last year, China cracked down on its tech sector pretty hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and we see in the United States, I mean, there, there, are, there are members of both, both major parties. Uh, that have an interest in antitrust activities, uh, maybe not to the extreme degree that China did, uh, but that they have an interest in going after some of these large companies uh, that they feel have, uh, you know, monopoly-like characteristics. And so, if mm -hmm. you if you start to see uh, a, a pressure there, that could be interesting. And I think also the last point is that going back to that inflation question, uh, you know, commodity capex is a lot tighter now. Uh, and so, if you get that inflation, that kind of more persistent type of inflation from a high commodity environment. That can put, uh, you know, upward pressure on interest rates. It can put, you know, uh, downward pressure on some of these valuations of these of these really kind of high-valued, growth-oriented software-type companies. Mm -hmm. And are you expecting that, Lynn? You're expecting more inflation. Uh, so I, th I think we're we're probably looking at a, a temporary deceleration of inflation, but I do mm -hmm. think that the 2020s in general are, are likely to be more inflationary on average than the 2010s, uh, which is generally not the best environment for those really growth-oriented, high-value companies. All right, we're going to have to leave it go at that. My engineer tells me I'm out of time. Thank you so much, Lynn, and once again for being with us. Always a pleasure having you. Your insights are very much appreciated, and uh, we'll hope to do it again sometime soon.
Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week. Next week, Alistair McLeod is joining me, and Dr. Quentin Henning will be back uh, as well to talk this time about Lion One Resources. It's a company that's finding a huge alkaline deposit in Fiji. Very exciting story. You won't want to miss next week's show. So until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Firefox Gold is exploring in Finland in the midst of an exciting new gold rush. Firefox successfully drilled high-grade and visible gold in 2021 and is now active at four prospective projects with plans to drill continuously through the first half of 2022. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, are driving the company to discovery, and the stage is set for Firefox to identify multiple new gold deposits. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX and on the OTCQB at FFOXF. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates.